Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network Studios on the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. She's back! I'm back! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Joining us today is Kalia Burke-Gatson. She is the CEO of Glide Path Strategies Firm. Her work is a mainstay in Detroit, having worked in community development, philanthropy, urban planning, and facilitating strategy. Most recently, she's been working on the Residence First Fund, which we will hear about a little bit later. Kalia, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you all. And I will say that among her many accomplishments, one thing we have in common is we both served as executive directors for the Vanguard Community Development Corporation at one time. So, you know, we crossed paths, but I got there before she did. I'm older, too, so that makes sense. (laughs) What's the the succession line at Vanguard? You're first. me, Scott Allen Davis, Kalila Burke. Guest, so you're number three. Mm-hmm. I believe Eleanor was there for a minute, but maybe not. And now she, she wasn't the ED. I don't think she was maybe an interim. Yep. And now and Pamela Martin Pam, Turner. Yeah. Pam Martin Turner over there uh-huh. making it happen. Yes. Wow. Yes. So it's a very small elite group of people that have been able to be executive directors over at Vanguard. I'm in the <laughs> presence of the elite at Vanguard. Yeah. It's good to see you, Kalia. It's I have not seen Kalia since the onset, since before the onset onset of the pandemic in the flesh how That's have right. you been i'm hanging in there like everybody else you know it's good to be outside a little bit and you know vaccinated and able to mix and mingle a little bit so yeah vax yeah. and spitting can facts you say vax and spitting facts i like that but can you vaccinated again you know vaccinated, vaccinated. as this delta variant you know works this way winds its way through the nation it is increasingly important to me to be around vaccinated people I remember I um, early in the, the pandemic, I said, or the vaccination process, I said I was going to throw a big party and, and people had to be carted at the door. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm getting serious about that now, not because I'm insensitive to people's you know misgivings. I'm happy to educate people and point people in the right direction. <laughs> but um, we've got to stop rejecting facts, whoever we are, because we are literally rejected. We've become... If Donald Trump had one enduring impact on this nation, it is that we have just stopped believing in facts. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what the facts are. And it started before him a little bit. But, you know, people have their own facts. It's mm-hmm. like I'm entitled to my own opinion about science. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yes, I mean, yes. Ain't nobody. A sci- are you really a science? Like, if let me. If my mom said this. If the scientists really start breaking down to you everything that's in these vaccines, would you know what they're talking about? Like, but then show up in the hospital. And then show up. And what would Right. Right. Oh, I want some monoclonal antibodies. What do you know about this? Do you know what's in there? Right. Clorox. Clorox. But you know what? No, I mean I'm 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 down. Drink Clorox, right? right? Because if you think that your Google MD is sufficient, do those things that you find out on the internet. But why would you say I don't trust doctors? And then go to doctors on your desk. Expressed on this podcast are those uh, who speak belong to those who speak. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying really do it, but what I'm saying. Saying is 
when people say my belief system is zinc and vitamin C and that's mm-hmm. going to get me through, why do you change up when you get sick? Mm-hmm. Why is it that you do that? And now you have endangered, you've cost money to a healthcare system that's already overburdened. In some states, people cannot get health care resources in an emergency because the hospitals are clogged up mm-hmm. by people who are sick with COVID-19. Now, if you didn't have a chance to get vaccinated, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But if you made a choice not to and other people are dying because they can't get into ICU because you're there now I think you've created a public health burden and you're accountable for it and Mm so I'm not trying to be you know you know too hard on people but I think we have to take personal responsibility seriously it's my decision whether to get drunk Mm -hmm. but when I get drunk and drive it's not my decision anymore Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. act as though I can make all of the decisions I want and it does not impact other people is this kind of you know craziness and here's the thing individualism that is ravaging people across the world are dying to get vaccines Mm -hmm. they're saying can we get vaccines we're about to get third vaccines and people can't get third and we're so privileged here Mm -hmm. that we're saying oh no i don't want to do that i'm gonna wait and that's fine but like i said in some states it's really really a matter of life and death where they're having to airlift children to other states because the emergency rooms are crowded and the ICUs and the pediatric beds are filled. So if you're listening, think about the fact that it's not about you. It's about us. And we are getting sick. And when I say we, I'm not just talking about Americans. I'm talking about us black yes, folks. Yes. We, yeah. Go on. And I just, I mean, I'm, you know, very open and honest about my own you know, health challenges. And so about three years ago, I had a very major health crisis. And so I am immunocompromised. So for me, it was a decision about continuing to protect myself and having those conversations with my family members, some who didn't want to be vaccinated. And it's like, well, if you come to the home or you want to continue coming around me, you have to be vaccinated. You know, when the pandemic started, I called my doctor and I said, what do I need to do? He said, don't get sick. Mm-hmm. Stay home. Because mm-hmm. with your heart condition, if you get COVID, I don't know what will happen to you. And so there's plenty of black people who have extended family members who have, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, who have, you know, or born with congenital issues. And so you do have to think about them as well, your own health, but then the health of those that you love. And so for me and my family, that was the decision. You know, I tell people all the time, my husband has never had chicken pox. Wow. At his age, the doctor said, the pediatrician said if he got chicken pox, he could die. Wow, it's your, so serious. Your yeah. kids need to be vaccinated. So our girls at a young age received the chicken pox vaccination. That was a no-brainer, yeah. right? Oh, if he gets it, he could die. It's the same thing, right? You, you know, you get your MMR, you get your polio, you get all of these other vaccinations, right, to protect against childhood diseases. And so somewhere we have lost kind of the, the good sense, right, <laughs> that we were born with, you know, um, and that our parents exercised when they made sure that we were vaccinated. And, and, I, and it, it hit me close to home recently. I'm just going to say that. Mm-hmm immunocompromised people who did not have the opportunity to go themselves Mm -hmm. and it was so scary and so you know it's devastating when it happens to some people that you love Mm -hmm. and so like you said think about people that you love the only other thing I'll say is maybe you don't love them Mm -hmm. maybe it's somebody else's kid and you don't Mm -hmm. even know them 
But shouldn't we love our neighbor Mm -hmm. like we love ourselves? And so I think that, you know, when you start looking at what's happening in schools where people are even arguing over whether children should be allowed to wear masks, Mm -hmm. where science is so politicized that if you stand for freedom, you're not going to wear a mask. And then you go to the airport, take off your shoes and walk through some type of five detectors to get to an airplane. You know, we're we're very selective about Mm -hmm. what kind of things (laughs) we consider freedom. Right. And now there was an article saying that parents attacked a teacher who decided to wear a mask and they approached her at their child's school and physically berated her and snatched the mask off. Caused it a teacher. That's insane. I think the the, uh, my number one or one of my fears headed into the fall is the rapid spread of mis and disinformation. (laughs) Right. Because what we are seeing is people who have internalized this misinformation as fact Mm -hmm. and is acting as so, especially, you know, those of us black folks, you know, who just are refusing uh, to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating to me. And as you uh, so eloquently laid out, uh, vaccines are not unprecedented, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> this isn't anything new. Mm-hmm. And as Donna pointed out, it's not about you, it's about us. Mm-hmm. And when we when we take that stand, that stance uh, for community, we all come out okay. We mm-hmm. vote the way that we do because we care about each other, not mm-hmm. just ourselves. And so uh, do the research, listen to Donna, listen to Kalia, go get vax and start spitting the facts. <laughs> Maybe that could be a campaign uh, that we pitched to Eric Thomas. <laughs> Read the facts, get vax or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right with the list of with the reputable l- facts. Because you know, my sister was like, "Oh, it's just so much information. It's hard to tell. You know what is fact and what isn't. No, there there are some guidelines. Yes, yes, there is. <laughs> Donna, we didn't even get a chance to ask you how was your vacation. You've been gone from two weeks. The people want to know how your vacation was. What you do? Where you going? You going on honeymoons every year? What's the <laughs> deal? Um, I'm kind of upset right now. Because I just learned that Steve Hood died looking mm-hmm. on um, Facebook. Oh, wow. And we've been friends since I was mm-hmm. 15. Sorry. Dude. And it happened so quickly. So um, wow. let me compose myself. He's been a guest on this show. Mm-hmm. I've certainly been a guest on every show he had. And um, we knew that that was, you know, happening. So, um, all right. Well, let's do that. this. We're going to take a break and we yeah. will be right back with more Authentically Detroit. Welcome back to Authentically Detroit. We just had to take a break because as we were recording, we received some devastating news that longtime Detroiter, journalist, activist, uh, radio personality, television personality and friend and partner of Donna Givens and a partner to ECN. Um, has passed away in the person of Steve Hood. Donna, I wanted to allow you just a couple of minutes to honor your friend, honor your brother you grew up with. I did. Um, we grew up together in the Plymouth Church Youth Group. Um, it's a group where I found my voice um, when I was in high school. Um, I went to an all-girls high school, predominantly white high school, and I felt very isolated and alienated. And I frequently say that Plymouth Church saved my life because it gave me a place to be me and to develop and figure out who I was. And within the large youth group, Steve and I were part of a small little group of friends. My boyfriend was one of his best friends. He dated all of my friends. Um, (laughs) Sounds like him. um, And, um, you know, we went on black college tours together. And, um, And then as an adult, I don't know that I think I found my... Um, voice, even in doing Authentically Detroit, 
in speaking out. I was on his show all of the time. I was a frequent guest and people would say, you need your own show. You need your own show whenever Steve would have me on. Um, he lived near me. Um, you know, he had his boat, Amistad, and he'd take, mm-hmm. you know, people on rides. And he was a fighter. Steve was never afraid to offend people. Never. And I think it's safe to say that sometimes he offended me and we would get into br- fights like brothers and sisters. Safe um, to say. Safe to say. <laughs> extremely safe to I've say. I've been there. You've been there. And, you know, it's like, you know, always. In fact, the um, last time Steve was on our show, I was arguing with him and he wasn't we arguing, arguing about the back. Yeah. And I couldn't understand why Steve was arguing back. I thought, maybe I've just gotten better at arguing with Steve because <laughs> he wasn't coming back the way he normally does with the kind of vigor. And mm-hmm. soon after that, we learned that he was ill. Um, Steve and I taught Sunday school together at Plymouth Church. Um, and we did that for a couple of years. He had been doing it for many years. Um, I couldn't keep up his pace for very long, but every summer he took students to on a um, black college tour like the one that we attended when we were kids. Um, he took kids not just from the, who were part of the um, Plymouth Church Youth Group, but young people from across the world. And to know Steve is to know that he was a politically incorrect person who <laughs> um, enjoyed being politically incorrect. Right? <laughs> if he, um, he liked to do that. And so um, the image of him being a Sunday school teacher is not one. I can't see it. And yeah. I, having known him at least for the last five years, I'm like, Sunday school, Steve? Okay. But at the same time, Steve knew every single one of these young people. I'm sure. He cared about them. He stayed in contact with them. He gave them opportunities. Those were Steve's kids. And, you know, so as they got older, he still stayed with them, cheered them on. Um, he that he didn't have children of his own. But what he had was Plymouth kids. And um, and I know that there are young people all across the city, really all across the nation, who've gone on and done great things, who credit so much of who they are with the, um, you know, Steve Hood, the individual, the one who could never be duplicated. And um, he was one of a kind. He was authentically Detroit. Authentically Detroit, <laughs> absolutely. You know, and he he um, he um, would sometimes you know try to bring truth to power and really make demands on our public officials. Um, so we were not always in political alignment, but you don't have to be with your friends. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I can say about Steve is that was as a friend, whenever I needed a friend, Steve was my friend. He was there through some of the worst moments. In the past years, when I um, ended up getting divorced the second time before my happy remarriage, I went through some rough times. And Steve was there for me. And it breaks my heart that this weekend, Cast Tech, class of 1981, is having their 40th reunion. And Steve is not there. I didn't go to Cass. But I went on the class trip with Cast Tech because Steve and my friend Claudia sponsored me and let me, well, I had to pay my own weight, but they let me um, celebrate with them. So to say he's been interwoven in my life since I was a teenager is, um, you know, not saying enough. Yeah. He's going to be missed. He's definitely going to be missed. It's, it's hard um, going to places, going outside, and people that you were used to seeing outside aren't coming back outside. Um, you know, shout out to uh, the legacy um, and the care and the candor that was uh, Steve Hood. Uh, you know, for the last five years, I had the opportunity to work with Steve Hood closely as uh, 
the chief development officer at Eastside Community Network. And we would have a lot of aside conversations because I was often hitting him up about money and <laughs> events and stuff like that. <laughs> he, he, he would always write a check. Um, and but, he got other people to write checks. And he got checks. other folks to write checks. And he would, you know, his table was always the fun table mm-hmm. at the extravaganza. But one of the things that he said to me early on when he came on our uh, development committee is that he wanted me to be successful in that role. Mm-hmm. And he did everything that he could to make sure that I was successful by showing up to meetings, offering his advice and input. You know, the way that the man thinks is so outside the box that you need a minute to catch up. And it's like, Steve, what are you saying? But then he's like, oh, okay. Hey, we, we probably get it. And uh, just remaining um, a mainstay, not only in the work that ECN was doing, but or other organizations throughout the East Side. He was not only a Detroiter, he was an East Sider. And he loved this community. He loved Donna. He loved us. He loves this organization, loved it organization. And he is a force that will definitely uh, be missed. And so our prayers and condolences. And prayers to for his brother, his brother, um, mm-hmm. Pastor Nick Hood of Plymouth Church. Yep. Steve was he lost his father recently. Yeah, he lost his stepmother, and Steve was his last surviving sibling. His sister-in-law, um, Judge Karen Fort Hood, passed mm-hmm. away a couple of days ago. Um, mm. It is just so uh, such a tremendous amount of loss for that family. Um, prayers to. Um, Denise Pagehood. Um, when I was growing up, they were Nick and Denise. I'm so I'm not even used to giving them honorifics, but Denise Pagehood, Judge Denise Pagehood, who was very close to Steve, had a close brother-sister relationship because she was married to Nick for as long as I can remember. Um, so my prayers are with the family and the nephews, as well as all of the kids and the people in the community who are impacted by um, this very, very sudden loss. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely premature. Kalia, I want to offer you the opportunity if you wanted to say something about. Yeah, I just had the opportunity to meet him um, in passing. You know, I'm not a native Detroiter, but I have always, um, you know, loved um, Detroit since I was little. I had grandparents and uh, aunts and uncles who lived here. And I know Plymouth United, a lot of my sorors and extended, um, you know, friends in Detroit were there. And so always have heard about the Hood family and their, you know, dedication uh, to the city, to the church. Um, and to the people. So, you know, it's just a hard time. Um, you know, Detroit, or, Detroit has lost um, just so many honorable and monumental Detroiters over the past couple of months and then the past 18 months. And so, um, Donna, my heart goes out to you, um, you know, just hearing you and seeing you speak about your friend. You know, we all have those friends that you grew up with um, that you've known since, you know, you were little, you were teens, you know, you were becoming. And so I know um, that this is a great loss for you personally um, and for the organization and for Detroit as a whole. So uh, my heart goes out to his family and to all those who loved him. Yeah. All right. It is time for fresh off the press news that we are thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Donna, 
fresh off the press. And I apologize, Orlando. I had it up and it's not up right now, but I'm going to talk about the census. Census mm. changes and may spell trouble for Michigan Democrats as redistricting starts. This is by Sergio Martinez Beltran for Bridge Detroit and Bridge, Michigan. I always try to pull a story from Bridge Detroit because Bridge uses brings news you can use. Um, <laughs> when you talk about the census, um, what they look at is the impact on black Detroit. Um, but the reality is, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just not, I'm a little off right now. What they look at is impact on Democrats and saying Democrats stand to lose. It's an interesting take. Um, and I think that's the way a lot of people tend to look at um the, the state this is the democratic part of the state and these are republican parts of the state and these are the republican strongholds and we are so hyper gerrymandered right now that we exist almost exclusively within areas where donald trump lost detroit by such large margins as people are like how could he lose detroit's like that but that's because our districts are drawn like that um, but i think the hyper partisanship has pushed us further apart it has made um, negotiation more difficult. And one of the things I read in this article that was interesting, because we do have three Democratic strongholds that um, are facing, you know, possibly a loss of a seat. It looks like the 13th and 14th district are protected by um, voting rights um, legislation. But the 5th district, I believe, um, Dan Kildee is mm -hmm. at risk. Mm -hmm. And um, he's lost so many people. And so what they're saying is, okay, even if the 13th and 14th survive, the boundaries may change mm -hmm. and may bring in more communities of people who are not traditional Democrats. Mm -hmm. And I think that's okay. I think that forcing us into more dialogue will probably make a more healthy um, ecosystem. I think also that when we talk about Democrats and Republicans, we act like there's two types of people. Mm -hmm. You have independents, you have millennials, mm -hmm. and <laughs> we're our own party. <laughs> millennials, <laughs> y'all would like that if you could, right, exactly. <laughs> but millennials, we don't, don't really care for this two-party system, <laughs> right? Don't yeah. care for the two-party system. Mm -hmm. Don't necessarily feel a sense of belonging. Maybe it's time for a third party, and so I think we need to stop looking at that. And the other thing, and the final thing I want to say about this is that Detroit is comprised of, um, I mean, black people have moved out of Detroit. Mm -hmm. One of the things that the census showed us is that Detroit is whiter because more white people have moved in and black people have moved out and we're moving out into the suburbs. So mm -hmm. even if you expand the boundaries of these districts into the suburbs, some of those suburbs are going to have our cousins, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, we're not as segregated as we used to be. And that also speaks to greater political input and strength in the state if we're smart about it. Mm -hmm. So I look at this as a moment of political change and transition, not one of loss. And I think it's important that the Democratic Party develop plans to speak to independents, to millennials, and to people who are outside of the confines of the party. Our state Democratic Party is not the party it needs to be. It is very much a party of loyalists and traditionalists, mm -hmm. in my opinion, and there's very little room for progressives or people with new ideas, and we've got to change that. Mm. You know, it's so funny, Donna, that you said that, you know, as as Black folks begin to spread out uh, political power, can also spread out. You know, one of my thoughts originally, and you're challenging me to think about it differently, is that uh, political power is siloed when we are separated, right? Mm -hmm. In that way, we we lose um, 
the 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 power of numbers the power of uh, a collective people in a collective geography voting within their interests and you know my thought had been in times past that when we begin to sift off like that we become political minorities and have to fight um, a little bit harder but here you're saying and I think it's a good point that here is an opportunity to spread out our political acumen and power um, and force dialogue and force change within the party systems, you know, that we hold. And I think that we have, and I think that is, I think that's a great point. And I, I've not thought about it that way. Well, when you look at it, um, we have political power in Detroit and that means almost nothing when the mm-hmm. outstate people decide they're going to take that's our power right. away. Mm-hmm. We think we have power, and sometimes it's illusory power. That big city power changed as big cities got smaller, mm-hmm. and outstate people became more rigid in their opposition. Look what we've lost. We lost our voting rights um, with um, emergency management. We lost our schools. We lost residency. We lost, you know, um, profit sharing and so, I mean, um, revenue sharing, rather, mm-hmm. um, and so many other things that we took for granted under big city Mayor Coleman Young that are no longer par for the course. Right now, you could have a city having, even if we had a strong mayor in the city who was really fighting on behalf of black people right now, you would have a state government that is not caring about our needs. So somehow, as we diversify Mm. as we move out of these strongholds we've got to be smart politically and Mm -hmm. figure out how to have power or to build power in places where we are not naturally powerful Mm -hmm. it's not going to be like 1970 1970 was a point in time Mm -hmm. 1950 we didn't feel powerful in detroit right we didn't have that sometimes we want to go back to a past that first of all nostalgia tells us was better than it was Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and secondly the that good old was days. a pathway to where we need to go in the future because mm-hmm. racism has never not existed in this nation. Mm-hmm. Racism was actually worse in many ways in the 1970s when we had the most political power than it is right now with respect to access to loans and yeah. mortgages yeah. and some of the other resources that we have. And certainly some of our brothers and sisters in the southern states had it a lot worse mm-hmm. than that than we do now. So moving forward, I hope that we don't get caught up in these feelings of futility and powerlessness that sometimes we fall into because, you know, the final thing I'm going to say on this is so many of us don't feel empowered by the Democratic Party beyond Mm -hmm. Election Day. She said it. Yeah. Where's the bell? (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think the sense is also highlighted right that those inner ring suburbs to your point donna are now approaching majority black cities so harper woods warren e-course and so you know you do um i don't necessarily i grew up in indiana so i've never been you know in a state where you had a majority black city but i think it's really used as a wedge issue in michigan even if from a policy standpoint, people in, you know, mid-Michigan or upper Michigan should be aligned, right, with Detroiters. In their mind, right, Detroit is sucking up all of the resources. No. Um, but if we're able to create those alliances, I think from a policy standpoint, you can actually, you know, uh, mobilize um 
you know, uh, resources. And get rid of this minority yeah. uh, delegation that we have in the legislature That's as well. That's right. Yeah. Um, I have a client in mid-Michigan, and we had an opportunity to talk to people in Gladwin County. I didn't even know where Gladwin County was. And so I was talking to them about their most pressing challenges, education, poverty, Internet access, water, the same things that here in Detroit we are concerned about, right? And nobody is telling them, right, in Gladwin County that they're aligned with Detroiters, you know, here, right? In their mind, we're diametrically opposed. Um, so, you know, we do here in Michigan, I think, need more kind of uh, cross-state organizing and coalition building mm. across geography and maybe even across party lines. We do. I think we need to have PACs, right? Mm -hmm. um, where's a black PAC? I don't mean we've got lots of little PACs. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that. What I mean is that when you have you have a rights, uh, a gay rights lobby, mm -hmm. you have a lobby for Jewish people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember what that is, but it's APAC, which is a lobby yeah, that is addressing. Um, you have lots of lobbies that address people mm -hmm. and those lobbies build power and then pressure other interest groups. Mm -hmm. We do have things in common with people in upper Michigan, but at the same time, they've been taught That's that right. we have those things they lack. And the mm -hmm. reason they lack those things is because we have them. Mm -hmm. And racism is sometimes such a big barrier to cross that sometimes you can't. However, if you read Barack Obama's book, his biography, he talks about how he went to those small towns mm -hmm. and talked to those people and let them know, hey, listen, you know, I'm a big a kid with big ears from whatever. You know, his, 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 you know, <laughs> I, his I haven't thing opened was. his book yet. I was still mad <laughs> at him about some stuff. Right. Go ahead. But, you know, it's, it's but it, if you want to understand how to build coalition yeah. across those lines, read it. You got to do it. All of these people want to be Obama, but they don't want to do that kind of work, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. He had a social media game that nobody else had, mm -hmm. and he was able in to mobilize that. In 2008. And yeah. one. We have people we seen in a before. pandemic, and it's like, where's your social media game? Don't yeah. tell me you got a social media specialist, <laughs> but you ain't got no game, because... I should be your stuff isn't going viral. What he was able to do uh, yeah. is to move a viral campaign. I think there's lessons there. But the one lesson I saw was he was able to use himself and say, I connect with you. Yeah. And we need people to do that. Understanding you have to transcend race. But I also think we need political action committees. We need to move out of this concept that we can only work together if we live together and say, how do we work across county lines, across state lines, you know, all of that. Um, so I hope that we become more sophisticated in our organizing, understanding that we aren't going to live. And segregation was never a good thing. Segregation was always, and I know people get very, very nostalgic about segregation, especially if you were at the top of the segregated pyramid, things were great. Which is so crazy. Right? But if you were at the bottom of that segregation pyramid, things were not great for you. And I think it's important for us to understand that that piece as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That wraps up our Fresh Off the Press segment. If you have pieces that you want discussed on the podcast, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Kalia, we're excited to talk to you about your role with the Residence First Fund. Ooh, ooh. Money is moving <laughs> in Detroit neighborhoods. That's what you hear when you hear the word fund. You think about money. So you first should, off, Kalia, tell us about the Detroit Residence First Fund and your role in helping to facilitate it. Sure. So I, I first want to say... Um, 
you know, this has been a journey and I, you know, would be remiss if I didn't just mention, you know, really the visionary behind the Detroit Residence First Fund. And that was my former colleague. I call him the godfather of philanthropy, <laughs> uh, you know, Ed Ignatius. The homie. That's my good <laughs> um, dude. And, you know, for all those Detroiters out there, Ed is doing well. He's living outside of Denver. He's a member of the NAACP out there. Of course. Of <laughs> course he is. Um, and so, Ed, when we were colleagues at Kellogg, he had a vision for really pulling together resources from foundations to support grassroots organizations in mm -hmm. Detroit. Those organizations who probably would have never qualified for a formal, you know, grant from a large foundation who are really doing organizing work, um, who were really talking and listening to people in their neighborhoods. And the goal was, you know, eventually that that organizing could help build power and could be mobilized collectively across the city for policy change. And so those initial meetings of which Donna was a part of started way back in 2016, 2017, just coming together, talking about the fund, figuring out how it would work. You know, Ed wanted foundations, intermediaries, as well as community leaders to be at the table really making decisions about how the money would be spent. And so we, I came on board, I think, in 2019 to really help that steering committee create the guidelines to figure out how to share power and decision-making ability around $6 million. So, you know, we have been on a journey together figuring out, you know, what are the guidelines? How do you review proposals? Um, you know, what types of organizations we want to support? And so we had a pilot during the uh, first phase of the pandemic and were able to officially launch this week. And so that's what you saw kind of on social media and then the newspaper was our first official launch. <laughs> Can I say this? Um, I started, I, I wasn't one part of that initial group. I think that was mostly... Um, good neighborhoods grantees as they had phased out. And then I got invited to the table, but I think all of us, you know, we're sitting there in the table with foundations, like, cool, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how much, right, right. So, how much you're getting, you know, you're getting, you know? <laughs> and it was a really interesting period because I just started at ECN and I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to, you know, do everything that was in the vision. This is before the enterprise communities mm -hmm. before Ford and, um, Kreisky Foundation created the um, General Operating Support Fund. We were mm -hmm. just at the table just trying to figure things out. And so, you know, when you get invited by somebody like the Godfather to the <laughs> table to talk about funding community development, you automatically think of self, right? Yeah. And so we're sitting at the table, and I think it, and after a couple of meetings, I'm like, wait a minute, they're not funding <laughs> us. We're going to help them figure out how to fund other people <laughs> so that there's more people competing for the same you know, dollars. And that was kind of interesting because <laughs> <laughs> it forced me to grow, right? It mm. forced me to really say and, and have that conversation. It is not about you and trust God. Yeah. If you grow and you don't, if you keep on looking at that same little pie, Trying to get your sliver of that same little pie is not going to work. Let's grow the pie together. And, yeah. in fact, that's what's happened. As those resources have been put out there, the pie has grown. But the other thing is that brilliant people who we've always known about are in our midst now. And we're working talk with them. You guys talk a little bit about that because, Kalia, you were saying that 
um, some of these grants from the fund are going to people and organizations that have never really received foundation support. Uh, that takes intentionality and mm-hmm. it takes uh, some guts and I'm sure some convincing of trustees on each foundation who is, uh, de- you know, delivering money to this fund. What was that process? How did you identify said organizations? And, you know, yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think what's been great about the fund is that the foundations are partners at the table, but they also have taken a back seat, right? So they let the community leaders lead, um, inform our guidelines. And a lot of times, you know, they're there, but they're like, what do you all want to do? And so uh, we decided during the initial pilot to do nominations. And so steering committee members, people who are a part of the process nominated. And uh, we had 18 organizations nominated. And we thought that we were only going to fund, I think, maybe five. But that grant review committee, which was comprised of community leaders, um, you know, who lead nonprofits themselves, came back with the recommendation to fund all 15. Right. And so the uh, the <laughs> steering committee i wonder who led that charge (laughs) you know and and that that was wonderful right and so we came back they they had you know their reasoning for it and the steering committee said okay that's what we'll do i want to give kalila some credit though (laughs) because she was the one who pointed out you know y'all have the money to do this i think she was the one who first pointed out where the resources were yeah because we had to look at it it's like okay so we can do it all now and it was cool you know, we have people like Mark Covington. I want to call out some yeah. Georgia mm-hmm. Street Collective. Georgia Street Collective who just started doing great stuff. And he didn't do it to make money. And he really did not have a fund development background mm-hmm. or strategy in place. But we knew his work, right? Absolutely. And his work stood for itself. Or you have people like Rhonda and Kimley Theus from Camfield Consortium. That's right. yeah, and they're right? just out there. You know, they have full-time jobs changing Camfield really with a right. vision. And how do you invest in that vision? And, of course, Mama Shoe and um, and, and Yusuf. Uh, oh, yes. man. Yes. Love yes. it. So we were able to invest in the kinds of people all of us love talking about, mm-hmm. but we don't necessarily. And the reason they don't have funding is not because they're not doing the work. Right, right. It's because their work does not necessarily align with the goals and strategies of the foundation community or philanthropy yet. And they haven't figured out how to make those connections mm-hmm. and or they really are about the work and not about all of the administrative stuff that's necessary to run a nonprofit. And so the idea mm-hmm. was bring them in. And there are people who are more sophisticated, yeah. like my former mentee, Leah Harvey <laughs> Quinn. You know, Leah was Detroit. doing Force yeah. Detroit. She yeah. was doing it already, but still needed help in many ways, right? That's so right. you have some people who have a little bit more sophisticated mm-hmm. knowledge. I like to believe that that's because um, Malaya worked. Her sister complimented and me, <laughs> and she said, you know what, Donna, you brought us into the nonprofits. And I was like, wow, nice. Now, I didn't even know I brought you, too, because mm-hmm. she's a little sister. But anyway, you know, you they had experience. They had mentors, right? Mm-hmm. But everybody doesn't have mentoring and they end up there and so the idea was to bring them all together and create a collective um, build a collective among the partners so mm-hmm. that we stopped being competitors and were proud of these folks coming in and then yesterday we saw some of the projects yeah yeah and um, barb 
Manti over at uh, Matney. Matney, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, there's also George Adams. So yeah. there is a nice mix in the 15. Those who are probably more established, Reverend Ross, of course, is a long time mm-hmm. you know, leader in the community, but still not necessarily being funded at the level, right, that her work really could be funded. And so it's been a joy um, to see um, people be able to take a stipend to pay themselves to invest in their own leadership. Um, and, you know, even throughout the pandemic, many of the organizations were out there on the front line, you know, supporting, um, you know, Detroiters, you know, sharing, uh, you know, distributing food and water. And so we were also able to um, give technology stipends to people and their organizations to help them transition during COVID. Mm-hmm. We invested in leaders themselves by giving almost 80 um, self-care stipends for leaders across the city to really invest you know, in their mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, financial health, Um, because we learned during the process that some people, even when they, you know, submitted their paperwork would not include themselves in the budget. Right. Would not pay themselves at all. It's a thing. Yeah. It really is a thing. Um, You know, folks who are really about that work have to learn. Right. So talk about uh, what kind of restrictions or or you or not or the lack thereof comes with this money donna and you are talking about organizations that have a little bit of infrastructure Mm -hmm. organizations that don't what has to be done with this money that they get sure so i think first and foremost you can be a nonprofit or you can be a project so Mm -hmm. we do have the ability to support um you know organizations that do not have their 501c3 and they will need a fiduciary Mm -hmm. um so you know there's flexibility there we're also open to and are supporting coalitions and emerging networks so you know recognizing that the structure of a nonprofit may not be the way that work needs to get done (laughs) that's good having flexibility about that um we also are flexible related to you know the content area so what we're most interested in is a commitment to community organizing to building power among residents and that the work is being led by black people the native detroit give her an applause jg give her that applause man god (laughs) um you know, and other people of color, and, and we talk about the reasoning for that, right? And um, there's been wonderful research done by, like, building movement to talk about the disparities in funding. So there is a reason why the fund is been crafted the way that it is. Um, and so that's pretty much it. You know, we will be opening up um, another round, our first official round um, of funding in the fall. And so, so people can. So, all right, because I was that's going to be my next question. <laughs> There's some people that are mad that they ain't know about this or hear about this. And we, where was the process and where was the transparency? You know, some folks are mad. So there yeah. is an opportunity uh, coming up in the fall for yes. other grassroots groups to be able to take advantage of this tremendous game-changing resource yeah that's right this was just this was a pilot so the 15 organizations also helped us get our stuff together right they gave us feedback about what was working what wasn't working you know i'll never forget um we launched the week no the day that uh, governor whitmer announced the the closure 
for the pandemic. And so we decided that we were going to pivot. We were going to still bring people together because people needed their money. So we had a meeting, you know, we had a conference call, wasn't Zoom, right? We had about 40 people um, on the conference call and we were talking about the requirements for evaluation and contracting. And I won't mention her name, but she went off on us and said, people are dying. People are dying. People are going to die. And we're out here on the front lines. And you all are talking to us about evaluation. Shout out to her. <laughs> whoever and, she is. And grant agreements. Get, give, give us the money. <laughs> and so that caused us to completely do a 180. And we got those checks out in less than 12 hours. Shout out to Wayne Metro and their staff. People were dropping off. Uh, you know, grant agreements at my house, texting pictures of grant agreements Lord. so that we could Just get the money to people. And mm -hmm. those resources were out um, by the first week in April. And it was that money that really helped to sustain some residents, some resident leaders, you know, during the first part of the pandemic. And so these leaders have been there in the trenches with us and telling us where we need to be more flexible where we need to listen to them more but the first official public round will happen this fall and so people can go to the website which is drffund.org the application will be there we'll have a series of um, you know open sessions where people can hear about the fund technical assistance opportunities to help people apply so yeah we we uh it'll be open it'll be a completely open process yeah. next time and you know i'm proud of the process we had before because mm -hmm. i think we got a lot of great people in there and i'm also proud of everybody on the steering committee um, i have to give um hats off to Kalina because you know, sometimes working with a bunch of leaders around a table is like herding cats. <laughs> so we, we can, we, we're not easy to work with, right? But it shouldn't be easy. It should be that you really work your way through some stuff and have the patience to really get to um, the right way of doing things. The other thing is, you know, there's been, when I first started in the nonprofit community many years ago, um, foundations used to give you money if you had a good idea. You just write it up, send it in. They like your idea. They fund you and trust you that you're going to do something well. And um, we got away from that. But I think during the pandemic, we had nothing but trust, right? But then, I, then again, I think if you um, want to get something done, ask a busy person. Mm -hmm. If you want to get something done, fund a busy person. Mm -hmm. We were funding people who were already doing the work. We mm -hmm. were not funding people who were going to start like doing the work. Yeah, and I hope people that. who are wanting funding and thinking, wait a minute, my ideas, where, where, what about my ideas? Understand this. And there are some people who are doing the work already. Mm -hmm. but understand this. Every single person who got funding was already doing the work. Yeah, and just from the folks you most named. Most of them yeah. were not getting paid. And mm -hmm. if they were getting paid, were getting paid pennies on the dollars for the work they were doing. When you are already doing the work, it's easy for other people to catch your vision. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm yeah. so excited about this project. I also want to um, praise um, Ed Ignatius, but also Kevin Ryan. Mm -hmm. Because midway through Shout the planning Kevin. process, we always praise Kevin, but this is one of the reasons why, right? <laughs> midway through this planning process, Ed stepped back. Mm -hmm. And Kevin stepped up. When you're funding, I don't care what you're funding, nobody wants to be the first money in. Mm -hmm. That's right. Kellogg went in and Fort went in and they brought Herb shortly thereafter. And I think Skillman mm -hmm. and others came in shortly thereafter. But it was really Kevin 
and Ed, Mm -hmm. who made the case to the foundations and demonstrated the pathway to the other foundations, we can make this happen. Mm -hmm. So they worked internally and also within their funder group to say, let's do something different for a change. And I'm hoping that this is the start of many changes and how things get funded in Detroit. What I remember about Ed talking about this project that sometimes gets lost is he was really about democracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was really about people having political influence and political power and thinking that there were such large segments of the city that weren't represented by anybody and where people's voices were just going unnoticed. And so one of these things was almost a pushback against what's happening in urban America right now, and that is increasingly gentrification in urban areas where the people who matter are the people with money who are coming in and with power. And I want to circle this right back to the um, to the census quickly, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm hoping one of the things that the census taught us is that you have to take care of the least among us if you want to grow your city. Mm-hmm. You can't just take care of the white folks and middle class folks and the buppies and yuppies or whatever we call them now <laughs> moving in. You can't just have high-end apartments. People are leaving Detroit because... They can't afford to maintain their housing in decent condition Mm -hmm. or because we aren't building housing for low income or moderately income families. We're losing working class Detroiters as much as we're losing anybody Mm -hmm. else. And what I'm hoping that um, this Residence First Fund does, along with so many other initiatives that um, I'm a part of right now, is begin to demonstrate the path forward for an inclusive and equitable city Mm -hmm. where our power is helped supplemented by what foundations are willing to do. And that helps us stand almost as equals with political, corporate, and other types who have traditionally had so much more power than we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clea, what's the, uh, is the funding multi-year and is there a, you know, typical grant amount? Like, you know, give me a <laughs> Yes. So I, I think there's a couple of things that I should highlight based on what Donna said. So in addition to the idea, we also want people who have a vision for what their organization needs. So Community Development Advocates of Detroit is a lead partner in helping to provide technical assistance, customized technical assistance based on the individual needs of each organization. And so that could be everything from HR to social media support to fund development um, support. So it's not just um, the money, which we know is important. It's also some additional supports for organizations. And so um, initially people can apply for um, $50,000 over three years, so a total of $150,000. There is an opportunity for that funding to increase. Um, And we are also really looking at moving forward, how do we grow the fund? So right now we're at close to $6 million. The goal is to invest $10 million over the next five years in community organizing and power building at the grassroots level. So um, you know, uh, Kevin, as well as Wayne Metro and Sarita are doing a wonderful job of talking to their peers in philanthropy about the fund. Um, so, you know, as the fund grows, so will the funding. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. 
Uh, Kalia, thank you so much for coming on and talking no about the resident the residents first fund and so many of the groups uh, that are receiving funding in this pilot. And you got to come back on when the new application is live, oh, right? Okay. So that we can <laughs> we can talk about that um, and what that process uh, will look like. This is amazing. It's a game changer for neighborhoods. And one of the things that I absolutely love is that the steering committee found out who was already doing the work mm-hmm. you know what i mean that's so important and and, and that yeah. i'm sure that had a lot to do with the fact that they brought community development organizations to the table yeah. and that's what made it such a great pitch but i also want to stand um recognize you orlando because you have been a long advocate for more equitable funding and saying <laughs> you know quit funding the same old folks and so i'm certain that you've been in other people's ears and helping to spread that message yeah i try to keep to that heard. down because you know people got mad at me around the kip d stuff but uh-huh, yeah. yeah including me i was like wait a minute Orlando, you work here i'm no longer eligible like, we're trying to fund small organizations like, check with me first no i'm just joking it is exciting listen we're in the same neighborhoods this is the yeah. thing that's important for us to understand. that's right we're in the same neighborhoods that kip d projects are getting done mm-hmm. it if the project gets done and other people did it, is That's that a problem? Way. Because our neighborhood improves and it's so That's important right. for yeah. us to take ourselves out of the calculation and understand that really the best projects are sometimes those that are done by people who live down the street mm-hmm. or across. We know that because we used to give out, we still give out small mini grants and we give mini grants to a resident to do you. something on their block. That's right. That stays pristine. Yes. Now you yeah. give it to a nonprofit <laughs> and you have a changeover in staff and nobody's <laughs> taking care of it anymore. But um, right Residents take care of their own. It mm-hmm. empowers them. In so many instances we've seen, we were the first money in. For and then a the lot projects of game changing stuff. Um, yes, you know, I think right. Feed Them Freedom, we gave Feed one of their freedom, first grants. The Manistique Treehouse. Tree yeah. um, Detroit of Bloom. The just Canfield three of Consortium. Oh, wow. It used to be Canfield Neighborhood uh, something, Alliance Neighborhood mm-hmm. or something like and that. And we yeah. give, you know, two or three thousand dollars. And we weren't giving 50, but we were right, giving right. like three or four thousand yeah. dollars sometimes. And that made a difference. And mm-hmm. so I think that Orlando was one of the pioneers in this concept of, you know, um, of really understanding the importance of funding people who are not traditionally organized to do big things. And I just want to say we selected the $50,000 after research, Mm -hmm. right, into funding opportunities. So in Detroit, there are a number of quote unquote mini grant programs, right? Where you can get five, maybe you can get $10,000, right? And then larger grant opportunities. But what was really missing was something in between, right? Where people could put, you know, a little bit more time, energy, resources into a project and kind of take it to that next level. And we also heard from people saying, oh, I don't want too much money, right? <laughs> right? I want right. to scale up a little bit at a time. I love that because right? that means that they really have their heart in the work, right? Yeah. And want to be able to do the right thing and administer and steer those kinds of resources when they get them. That's yeah, amazing. Do well. And do it well, right? So, you know, how to scale, right? And when to scale is also pretty good. But also, you know, this conversation that is for another show around just the nonprofit industry and 
uh, the reliance on foundation grants and, you know, this industrial complex that we all talk about all the time. That's yeah. that's for another show. But Kalia, thanks once again for being here. We're oh, so happy. Welcome. Every time Kalia joins us, there's something that, boom, a, a bomb drops. Something's <laughs> happened. Like, geez. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit or email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. It is time for shout outs. Donna, you have a shout out. I've got one um, that I really want to shout out. It's my colleague, Sharita Smith, who is the, um, I think she's the vice president or director. Is she vice president president. for community development for Sanir Solutions? Mm -hmm. You go ahead, boss. Sharita is, I've known um, her, Sharita, since she was young. Um, I worked with her husband. Um, I'm friends with her uncle, who's still on our board. Um, Patrick Lindsay. Patrick Lindsay. Yeah. Um, and so oh. I've seen her grow. I've seen her develop into such a great leader. She's worked at ECN a couple times, and she was um, my supervisor. She, I worked really closely with Sharita Smith. Yeah. So yeah. She, she's, um, you know, talented, brilliant. She's an East Sider, and now she's having her opportunity to spread her wings. So I'm super excited for her, and also for what that means for community development because. Um, With her at Snare Solutions, she understands firsthand the task Mm -hmm. at at hand. You know, she's not somebody coming in unaware of what we need to do. So um, hats off to you, Sharita. She knows what she's doing. Congratulations. Congratulations, Sharita Sharita Smith. Uh, And once again, we want to shout out all of the Detroit Residents First Fund recipients in this pilot uh, thank you for doing the work that you do. Shout out to especially some of the ones on the east side, That's Georgia right. Street Collective and Canfield Consortium and Bailey Park right. uh, Project and the Denby Neighborhood Alliance. Sandra, we right. love her here. Yeah, exactly. We have to get her on. We, we really yeah, do. We really um, do. And it's um, yeah. the. Bailey Park Neighborhood Development Corporation. I'm sorry. So, she got forgive me, Katrina. Talking about infrastructure. <laughs> Katrina got fancy on us. Uh, and, you know, our our friend and uh, habitual co-host and guest, uh, Yusuf Shakur, who makes us put the explicit on every time he comes on <laughs> the show. We love that man here. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for this week. We know we late. Forgive us. We love y'all, too. We want you to catch the wave.